Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we take a deep dive into what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing could mean for Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that affirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion. While the strategy of anti-abortion groups has been to severely weaken the right, attorneys now say the right itself could be in jeopardy. We'll look at the nuances of the balance of power on the Supreme Court, the role of legal precedent, and the potential impacts on the ground of the law being overturned. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President Trump said he will name his nominee to succeed Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg tomorrow. The trailblazing feminist jurist became the first woman and Jewish American to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol this morning. One of Trump's top contenders to succeed her is Amy Coney Barrett, whose conservative jurisprudence has called into question the future of Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 decision establishing a nationwide right to an abortion. In this hour, we look at the likelihood of a conservative majority overturning Roe and what that would mean for women across the country, particularly those who live in states that already limit abortion access. And joining me is Jennifer Dalvin, director of the Reproductive Freedom Project at the ACLU. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer Dalvin. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this important topic. Well, thank you. You know, speaking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I was interested to learn that she was not a fan of Roe in that she didn't like the way it was decided because it left it open to legal attacks. You know, as I said, Roe established a nationwide right to have an abortion. But what are its legal vulnerabilities? Well, I think what you're talking about is something that really went uh, throughout Justice Ginsburg's career, which is an emphasis on equality. And she really understood that the right to abortion is central to women's equality, to our ability to plan our lives, to participate um, uh, in the workforce, to have the lives we've dreamed for ourselves. Uh, and so it's, she would have preferred that the right, I think, were grounded more uh, in a right to equality uh, rather than simply the right to privacy, which it is grounded in now. I but see. I think, unfortunately, um, the right, uh, it's not good. that's not what's going to make the difference here before a new conservative Supreme Court. Yeah, so let's talk about that. What is going to make the difference before a new conservative Supreme Court? And one of the first things that I would love to hear more from you about is the role of stare decisis, the role of settled law, because I remember this was such a big issue during confirmation hearings as to whether or not Kavanaugh, for example, believed that Roe was settled. Yeah, that's exactly right. That question of stare decisis, whether uh, courts can can and should revisit uh, longstanding precedent. And I think there's a couple of things to think about here. One is um, people have, you know, might talk about uh, Judge Barrett's views on precedent because she has said she will be guided by precedent. But being guided by precedent when you are a lower court judge is an entirely different thing than the question of whether you will be guided by precedent uh, when you are a Supreme Court justice. And it is up to you um, to um, make that decision. As a lower court judge, you are bound by the decisions of the Supreme Court. So that's one thing. The second thing I'll point to, although you know Justice Kavanaugh did have that conversation when he was confirmed, all we need to do is just look at the decision 
um, from the Supreme Court just from this past June. In, in the month of June, the court decided a case called June Medical. Um, and in that case, it was an identical case to one the Supreme Court had uh, considered just four years ago. And four years ago, the court said that a law that would have um, the effect of shutting down the majority of clinics in the state of Texas was unconstitutional. Then we fast forward four years later to a new court with um, Justice Kavanaugh on it. Uh, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts comes out with the majority. He, saw, he sides with the liberal uh, wing of the court to say that precedent controlled uh, and that he was therefore unable to come out a different way when examining the same exact law, uh, a law from Louisiana that would have left the state with only a single doctor to provide abortions in the entire state. Um, just Chief Justice Roberts said, I'm bound by precedent. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm go even though I disagreed with that case, even though I disagreed with the Texas case, I'm bound by precedent. And so I'm going to strike down this law. Chief Je um, and Justice Kavanaugh did not rule that way. Justice Gorsuch did not rule that way. Uh, only Chief Justice Roberts did. I see. And then, of course, even if something like this comes before Roberts uh, or even this question of overturning Roe as part of a, a case that's brought before the U.S. Supreme Court, and you have a judge like a Coney Barrett installed by uh, by the Senate after President Trump nominates somebody, you would still only have a 5-4 with Roberts. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, right now we know that Chief Justice Roberts is not a supporter of abortion rights, right. but we have a few things going for him, us with him. Um, uh, like I said, he would have allowed Texas to shut down the majority of clinics in the state, but we have a few things going with him. He uh, has concern for the integrity of the court. He, like I said, has some concern for precedent. Um, but if there is a new, uh, a new justice added by President Trump, getting his vote um, won't matter <laughs> or won't be the deciding factor. You'll need someone else too. And all we need to look to is, like I said, this decision from, um, from just this past uh, summer, as well as um, the fervor with which, um, you know, some of the groups that have as their mission to overturn Roe v. Wade are lining up behind uh, these possible new Trump appointees. Yes. Would it be fair to say I've seen uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett described as a favorite of many in the anti-abortion movement? That certainly appears to me to be true um, from all of the press that I am reading. Uh, they seem to be really pushing her forward. And just in terms of her, the way that she's previously decided cases and, and the things that she has said, it's very clear that she would, she is not somebody who would support Roe. She does not support Roe. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned June Medical and you mentioned that, yes, uh, Justice Roberts did decide uh did decide that he could not allow this Louisiana law that would have significantly uh, made it significantly harder for women to have an abortion because it would have required admitting privileges um, for for providers. That in his argument, he was really showing, though, his his disdain for <laughs> abortion rights to some extent, right? And that oh, he was to be almost. Sure. Yes, and inviting inviting a challenge that would revisit some of these previous decisions that he said he was bound by. That that's absolutely right. There should be no um, uh, suggestion here. Please don't hear me as saying that Chief Justice Roberts um, is a supporter of abortion rights. He's absolutely not. Uh, you know, he did a few things in that opinion that make that crystal clear. One, he said, like as I mentioned, that he thinks if he was deciding this case in the first instance, he would allow all these clinics to be shut down, even though the courts um, below have all found there is no medical necessity for uh, the admitting privileges requirement. He wouldn't um, so that's one thing. And the second thing he did um, was say, you are exactly right. He said, I think the test ought to be different and more permissive and states should be allowed to enact more and more restrictions that make it harder and harder for people to get abortions. And I don't think the court should look at whether those laws 
um, the, whether the benefits of those laws outweigh the burdens on people. Um, uh, and so I would, I would change, I would alter the standard. And, and it really is an invitation to states um, to pass more and more laws restricting access. As we know, uh, since 2010, states have passed more than 460 restrictions on access to abortion, pushing abortion further and further out of reach, particularly for folks with low incomes, um, black and brown communities, immigrant communities, um, and so forth. And we can expect that if the standard changes or um, and is further curtailed, that it will be, it can be made as good as illegal before the Supreme Court even gets to overturning Roe versus Wade. Right. So, I mean, in order for the Supreme Court to get to the point of overturning Roe, they would need to hear an abortion case. And I'm curious which one you think, because there are many, right, in in appeals courts and so on, will come before the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, you're exactly right. There are about 17 cases that are one step away from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there are cases that are these clinic shutdown laws, like I've been talking about. There are cases that are bans on abortion. There are cases um, uh, uh, that seek to allow government to interrogate the woman's reason for having the abortion. There's any one of a number of cases that could come before the Supreme Court and serve as a vehicle to further restrict access to abortion um, uh, or overturn the right uh, altogether. We're talking about the future of Roe v. Wade as President Trump prepares to name a conservative jurist to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're talking with Jennifer Dalvin, director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions or concerns do you have about the future of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights in the U.S. now that the Supreme Court's composition is about to change? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And can you just give us a sense of where things are right now broadly? We know that especially a lot of emphasis has been on southern states, for example, that have passed extreme laws banning abortion. Well, that's exactly right. States in the in the heartland of the U.S., in the middle of the country, and the South, um, like I mentioned, in the past ten years, they've passed more than four hundred and sixty restrictions on access to abortion, making it uh, near impossible for many many people to get an abortion if they need one. There are many states that are down to only a single abortion provider in the entire state, meaning that people have to travel hours and hours to get the care they need. Um, In many of these states, you have to make multiple trips to the clinic in order to get care. In most, in many of these states, um, your insurance won't cover abortion. uh, And so low-income folks may have a particularly difficult time getting care. Yes, there are so many impacts uh, associated with some of these laws already that give us a clue as to what it would be like if this was something that was applied more broadly. Again, we're talking with Jennifer Dalvin of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, and we'll have more guests coming up after the break. So stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the future of Roe v. Wade as a conservative nominee is all but assured to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. Both abortion rights proponents and uh, proponents and opponents agree that there's a better chance than ever that Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision establishing a right to an abortion, could be overturned. And we're talking about how it could play out with Jennifer Dalvin, director of the Reproductive Freedom Project at the ACLU. And you, our listeners, you can join us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Maggie in Arinda. Hi, Maggie. 
throwing this out to friends lately that, you know, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that maybe it would cause such an uproar that Congress would finally have to take it up and try to legislate that right where it hadn't previously ever been. And I'm just sort of wondering about your guest view about that and, you know, whether that's a pipe dream or, you know, could it happen or what she does think would happen is if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned. Mm. What are the chances that Congress would step in here, Jennifer Dalvin? Well, I think you bring up a really important point, and there's actually legislation in Congress right now um, that would provide protection for uh, the right to abortion. I think whether that legislation stands a chance of becoming law, um, you know, has everything to do with how the election comes out this November. Um, uh, And so, you know, it's really important for your listeners to know that, uh, you know, contacting their Congress people about this legislation. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act is one of the bills. And the other one is called the Each Woman Act. Um, and that that these are important to you and important to protecting abortion throughout our country. Uh, uh, and so that's one thing that folks can do. And the other thing is to vote like your rights depend on them because they do not only in the area of abortion, but in uh, areas that progressive, lots of progressives care about voting rights, uh, racial justice, criminal justice, uh, immigrants' rights, healthcare access, and so forth. Um, you know, that those decisions are made uh, at the voting booth, both at the federal elections and at state and local elections. And so um, whether it's folks uh, here in California or folks, um, you know, encouraging your neighbors and your relatives in other states uh, and localities to vote, those are, you know, two of the most important things that people can do. Well, we're joined now by Dr. Carrie Swiak, Professor of Gynecology and Obstetrics at Emory University School of Medicine. She's also a practicing OBGYN and abortion provider at several Atlanta area hospitals in Georgia, which passed a heartbeat bill signed by the Republican Governor Kemp in May of 2019, which effectively means no abortions past six weeks, except in cases of rape or incest or maternal, the mother's health is endangered. It also contained this provision for up to 10 years of prison time for doctors who perform abortions. Right now, it's stalled in legal challenges. But Carrie Swiak, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I I just first have to ask, what would happen to your patients if a heartbeat bill, this heartbeat bill, became law in Georgia? So it's really important to clarify that currently abortion is legal and available in Georgia because thanks to Sister Song and other community organizations, um, we were able to successfully um, get this bill blocked. Um, But certainly, um, and unfortunately in uh, in my state in Georgia, we have uh, the highest maternal mortality rate of all the states. Um, And that is currently over 40 deaths per 100,000 births. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but to be the worst in the country and to think that that's just mortality associated with pregnancy, um, with, uh, with something that is typically, you know, associated with, uh, with a happy event of a live birth, um, it's staggering. So wait, you're basically saying that Georgia is basically telling women with this particular bill who don't want to be pregnant past six weeks that they have to be, and that they aren't doing a good job of even making sure that women who are pregnant give birth safely. Certainly, we've had a, a over the past 20 years, a significant number of uh, labor and delivery units throughout the state close, um, where there are over 50% now of uh, counties that don't have an OBGYN provider available uh, for for patients in Georgia, and um, and so that likely has um, increased the uh, maternal mortality issue here. Uh, specifically, also, it's going to impact Black women because um, if you look at the rate of mortality for Black women compared to white women in Georgia, it's yes. twice as high. If you look at the rate of um, mortality for maternal mortality for 
black women in Georgia, it's six times higher than um, that for white women uh, in the rest of the country. And if you compare the mortality of abortion, you're talking about less than one death per 100,000 cases. And so uh, infinitely uh, safer to have an abortion um, than to have a live birth. And when you're talking about an unintended pregnancy where it perhaps is not associated with the same um, happy life event um, that an intended or a planned pregnancy would, would have, then you could see where it significantly impacts a patient's um, potential, their survival, their quality of life, their health. Yes. Also, as I said, the Georgia Heartbeat Bill contains a penalty for doctors of up to 10 years in prison for violations. I mean, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it's, it's, um, that's a very significant uh, penalty. That was a very significant effect of the bill for, for me and my colleagues. Because the important thing is that abortion care is health care. And it's the safest option for for women who have a complicated pregnancy it's the best option for women who don't want to be pregnant and i took an oath as a physician to do no harm to my patients and to provide them the best health care that i can provide them and and to do so according to their um their autonomous decisions and so when i'm not able to provide the safest health care for my patients it really results in a significant moral injury for me and for my uh, fellow colleagues who believe in ethical medical care. And right now, you mentioned that this law is blocked, but that has been appealed. I wonder if Roe is gone, overturned, will it be harder to challenge these draconian kinds of rules? Certainly, it will be harder. And uh, we're playing with people's lives. People will die in, in, in the midst of this um, political fight uh, while, while we decide if, uh, if we're really going to provide um, ethical and safe health care to everyone, uh, regardless if, if their decisions would be the same as ours. And um, again, thinking about my own state, unfortunately, we're going to have our patients die as a result. And it's just, it, it's unfathomable. And I, I, I can't even stand thinking about it. Well, Dr. Carrie Swiak, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. Thank you. Carrie Swiak of Georgia, a professor of gynecology and obstetrics at Emory University's School of Medicine and a practicing OBGYN and abortion provider at several Atlanta area hospitals. Jennifer Dalvin, it's very interesting to, to hear um, Dr. Swiak say these things because what I often hear from uh, opponents of abortion is that these laws are necessary for the mother's safety. Yes, well, that's that's not true in, with any of these laws. But it's as as Dr. Swiak pointed out, it's particularly not true for these abortion bans. Um, abortion bans force women um, to stay pregnant when they don't want to be, and when it's uh, dangerous for their health. And Dr. Swiak pointed out those really, um, really devastating maternal mortality statistics, particularly for Black women. Uh, I believe she said it, uh, the maternal mortality rate is six times as high for Black women as it is for white women in Georgia. And that's just a national disgrace. And the idea that uh, we would force women who do not want to be pregnant or for whom the pregnancy is dangerous to remain pregnant is 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 a real crime. Let me go to Daphne in Roseville. Hi, Daphne. Oh, hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, please go right ahead. You're on. Yes. My question is for the attorney. I'm a registered nurse and not an attorney, but my understanding of Roe v. Wade is it was settled uh, under privacy and self-determination um, precedence. And my question is, under the umbrella of right to privacy and precedent. I support the right for people to make medical decisions with their uh, provider in the privacy of the offices and for safety reasons and a lot of other reasons. And my question for her is, can she speak to under the umbrella of privacy, um, would there be 
uh, the possibility of lawsuits challenging things such as uh, sterilizations, such as vasectomies, uh, use of Viagra for erectile dysfunction, use of penile implants for diabetics that um, have that disorder. Because these are reproductive-related medical decisions that directly affect uh, reproduction in a relationship or not. And the same would be for women's sterilization and birth control. Are all of these things under a similar legal umbrella? Because it's sort of confusing to us out here why one reproductive procedure is, is now wanting to be outlawed when all of these others are not spoken of. Thank mm-hmm. you. Daphne, thanks. Yes, thank you for raising that question. And you're right, the right um, to have an abortion was decided under a privacy right, an idea that the government should not be, um, that these are really important life decisions for people uh, and that they belong to the people who make the decision. Uh, and it, you are right to think that if the court finds that um, there's no protection for the right to abortion under the right to privacy, privacy, other things can fall as well. Uh, The one that comes most immediately to mind is the right to contraception, which was decided by the Supreme Court under the same legal principle. Uh, So you're exactly right to try to connect those dots. Well, I'd like to bring Michelle Goodwin into the conversation, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. Her recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I I wanted to ask you about, I mean, I think Daphne's question really sort of leads to this, but how is it, I don't know if you can give us some historical context, that this particular action of ending an unwanted pregnancy became such a focal point, given all the other things related to reproductive health and family planning? It's an excellent question. Women's reproductive health and rights has always been a political issue. And really the perfect storm came about around the time of the Civil War. The pilgrims were performing abortions. Abortion was legal in the country. There was was no legislation about it. Abortions had been performed for millennia. But this perfect storm involved, uh, well, I should say that nearly 100% of women's reproductive health care had always been done by men. But uh, abortion became, and, and reproductive health became professionalized around the time of the Civil War. And professionalized, what, what I mean by that is that there were men who had invented instruments. They had, they had experimented on enslaved Black women, but they had invented these ex- instruments which they wanted to use Uh, on women and the way to push women out of the reproductive sphere, these were midwives, was to then use the lobbying arm of the American Medical Association uh, to require that there be licensure standards, to require that one goes to medical schools. Well, as we know, women had been kept out of law schools, medical schools, et cetera. So what they were really doing was creating a monopoly. But what's very interesting is the way in which they went about creating their monopoly. People like Horatio Storer, Joseph Dewey, and others, which was that they used the American Medical Association to uh, to establish and promulgate laws that would then be legislated to criminalize even midwifery, require licensure for midwifery, and then to use abortion as a wedge issue. That these were women that were engaged in a horrific type of a practice. But it's also important to note that they used race too, because we're at the time of the Civil War. And they wrote in their pamphlets and books and gave lectures that they needed white women to quote, spread their loins and to go south and west and north, um, and that this would help to keep America white. I mean, it's just explicitly there. And the AMA was engaged in this. They were also anti-immigration as well. So it's very interesting to see this kind of perfect storm coming about again now. That was our history of how the kind of anti-abortion movement was created. It was actually created on men who wanted to monopolize the space and they were quite successful because by the turn of the century, uh, midwifery was down to about 1% of reproductive health care from 
5%, and then had really encroached in the space to the point that when the case Roe v. Wade is being litigated, what's very interesting is Justice Blackmun speaking to this history, that abortion had not been criminalized before. It had just been open. He doesn't really speak to the way in which men monopolize this for themselves, but that is exactly what happened that got us to the point of abortion being perceived as something that was part of an unusual part of reproductive health care. So the roots were in some way concerns over lost economic opportunity. I mean, well, here's a comment from another listener who writes, most abortion opponents base their view on religious beliefs. Where is separation of church and state in all of this? Don't we have a constitutional right not to have religious views making law? That's absolutely right. And when you look at Roe v. Wade, what's very interesting about that case, and it's really important, it's 1973, it's a seven to two opinion, written by Justice Blackmun, who is a Republican, who is nominated to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon. The reason why I point this out is that there was a time in American history where there was a thick separation between church and state. And you see that in that opinion. Of those seven justices that support the opinion, five had been Republican appointed. It's also important to note that when we look at the broader sphere of this space, just to that point about the separation of church and state, another important reproductive health law that comes through Congress is Title X. Title X provided reproductive health care services for the poorest of Americans. And this is shepherded through Congress in the early 1970s. Who is shepherding it through Congress? None other than George H.W. Bush, Father Bush, right? His father, Prescott Bush, was the treasurer of Planned Parenthood. Who signs Title X into law but Richard Nixon? And this history is really important. I'll add just one additional bit to that. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. receives Planned Parenthood's inaugural big award, it's Margaret Sanger Award, in 1966. The speech that he writes for it, he happily accepts it. He says that women's reproductive health care is as important as racial civil rights, that these two movements align. He says that it is cruel and unjust for a child to be brought into a family where it's not wanted and that it's cruel for women to be subjugated to a life that they do not want. We're talking to, with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine. We're also talking with Jennifer Dalvin, Director of the Reproductive Freedom Project at the ACLU. And we're talking with you, our listeners, about your questions, concerns about the future of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights in the U.S. now that the Supreme Court's composition is about to change. You can call us at 866-733-6786 to register your thoughts. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the future of Roe v. Wade as President Trump prepares to name a conservative jurist to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're talking with you, our listeners. You can reach us online at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook. Email us at forum at kqed.org or give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Jessica writes, overturning Roe would allow some states to deny access to abortion, taking away the rights of the poorest in society. Wealthy women would still have access to an abortion via travel to other states. And let me go to Sean in Oakland. Hi, Sean. Well, hopefully I can condense my question. Actually, I have two, but first one is, my question is to laws governing the unwanted child to their raising and care, children whereas. The care of the child becomes an impact of responsibility of low-income and poor families. Were laws created in the same states that limit a woman's control over her own body results in a parent being charged with negligence in the care of the said child and resulting in prison and sometimes the child being taken away? That's my first question. And my second one is adoption. How many of these opponents against abortion are putting their money their love and time and taking care of these unwanted children and adopting them. Thank you. 
Sean, thanks. Uh, Jennifer Davin, I'll start with you if you want to respond to Sean's points. Sure. I think um, you raise an important point because one of the things we want to look at, obviously, is do you care about, there's a lot of um, conversation about caring for the rights of the unborn, but if we look at the states um, in, that are restricting access to abortion, they often have some of the worst policies with respect to uh, child care um, support for families. We need to look no further than what Dr. Swiak was talking about in Georgia, where the mater- which has the worst maternal mortality rate in the country and has a rate that is six times higher um, for Black women than it is for white women. Uh, and so if that was really the concern here, we would want to, we would think we would see lots of investment um, in um, uh, trying to take care of uh, women giving birth, um, trying to provide good medical care, trying to provide care for infants and children, um, making sure they had safe places to learn and to live um, and food to eat. Uh, that's where we should be putting our efforts. Well, let me go next to Kristen in Redwood City. Hi, Kristen. Hi there. Uh, thanks for having me. I just wanted to make a quick comment. So I'm actually currently pregnant with um, our first baby, this at least this far, but I've had two abortions in the past. Um, the first time I was on birth control, um, I was married, um, but I was also on a prescription medication that causes birth defects. And so I chose what I felt was the more ethical um, route. And the second time I actually had a missed miscarriage. And so I was carrying around a dead fetus unbeknownst to me at the time. Mm. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity and the access to that care um, because it was the care that I needed. It was a medical decision for both um, at those times. And I can't understand why it would ever go away for anybody. Well, Kristen, first, congratulations on your pregnancy. And second of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. I do think that women, that this in some ways is a topic, uh, maybe not as much in California, but definitely in parts of California where it's it's like a topic you can't touch, which then also makes it harder to really examine and have a conversation around. Uh, Michelle Goodwin, I, I assume you would Agree, yeah. and just in terms of the cultural norms that have been established around around the right to an abortion. Well, what's become tragic is that we're disconnected from science and health. The first thing that's really important to know is that a person is 14 times more likely to die carrying a pregnancy to term. In the United States, That those figures are uh, even heightened if you happen to be of color. And so that's really important to know. It's also important to know that an abortion is as safe as a penicillin shot. That should help to situate our understanding about the care for people who become pregnant, that really when the state intervenes and places pressure saying you must carry this pregnancy to term or we'll make it difficult for you to be able to terminate the pregnancy, then the state is involved in something that is incredibly egregious. It really is, especially given the data that we know. That's not put at the forefront of these conversations and it really needs to be. The second thing, and and I agree with you, congratulations our caller's pregnancy. And it's really um, wonderful that, that the caller was able to get the medical care that she needed. The tragedy behind what she says, too, is that there was a prescription um, medication that she used that was helpful for her. But this prescription medication could lead to certain um, fetal abnormalities. And what's important here to note is that there are women who are being prosecuted across the country for taking drugs, whether prescription medications or illicit drugs that have some bearing on the fetal health. In Alabama, there have been hundreds of women who've had to take plea deals over the last few few years under legislation that was actually not intended uh, for pregnant women, but prosecutors have gone after them nonetheless. And also there's a civil side to this as well. And so this is really um, so unfortunate um, to see the rise in criminalization and also to see the civil punishment associated with pregnancy. 
Well, Rosie writes, for years it seemed to me that the anti-abortion laws have been more about religion's fear and hatred of women's sexuality with little to no care for the child after it was born. Is it correct that the right to abortion is enshrined in the Constitution in California? And what about other states? I mean, essentially, this is what would happen, right, uh, Jennifer Dalvin, if the if Roe is overturned, is that really it would just depend on your state's laws. The right to abortion would fall to states. Yes, um, the country would look even more divided uh, than than it does now. People in certain states may well still be able to get abortions, but people in many, many, many states uh, will not be able to get abortion care. Uh, so, you know, it is important, right? California is a is a good example of a state that protects the right to abortion. Um, but sadly, uh, there are, we know there are so many other states where uh, there are politicians chomping at the bit to ban abortion and many that already have if uh, and those laws would be allowed to take effect if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Mm. Well, Pete tweets, what is the constitutional basis for outlawing abortion? Michelle Goodwin? Well, there really isn't a constitutional basis for outlawing uh, abortion, but where the constitutional right comes for states to enact abortion provisions comes out of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania had, in, in order, one could say, to undermine Roe v. Wade, had enacted a number of provisions that were then tested before the U.S. Supreme Court. Of these provisions, which included parental notification, waiting periods, et cetera, all but uh, one uh, were permissible. The only one that was not permissible out of that case happened to be uh, pregnant persons needing to notify um, their spouse or husbands being able to know or boyfriends that uh, the pregnant woman uh, was seeking an abortion. Uh, Justice O'Connor made a point of noting the, uh, the domestic violence involved in, involved in pregnancy. And so that law didn't survive. But you've seen in the wake of that, states using that as a means to promulgate hundreds of laws, hundreds of provisions that are really anti-abortion provisions. And this is a means of trying to kill abortion by a thousand strikes. And so you saw that in the wake of whole woman's health. That is when the Supreme Court struck down two Texas laws, its admitting privileges law and its ambulatory surgical center law. Texas claimed as in many of these states, what they do is that these are really about protecting the health and safety of women. And that was tested in this case. Did those laws really protect the health and safety of women or was that just simply sub subterfuge and means of actually creating obstacles in the path of a woman being able to obtain an abortion? The Supreme Court decided the latter, that these were just substantive obstacles. And we've well, seen hundreds of them. Well, Daniel writes, isn't the simple tr isn't the simple truth that abortion is only between a woman, her doctor, isn't the simple truth that abortion is only between a woman, her doctor, and her God? Why are men allowed to vote on this issue that only affects a woman? This listener writes, when are we going to realize that the Catholic Church is orchestrating this repeal on abortion and birth control? A majority of the Supreme Court justices are Catholic. There's a blatant encroachment of the church on the morality of the rest of us. We're hearing a lot from people who are um, proponents of abortion rights on this program, but it's also true, is it not, that, you know, consistently two-thirds of Americans say they do not want to see that right go away. They do not want to see abortion rights overturned. And so, you know, Michelle Godwin, what does that say about our government representing the will of the vast majority of its residents? <laughs> It's well, it's very interesting is to look at data from the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum looks at the representation of women in federal governments across the world, and the United States ranks very low in the 80s, 90s, in terms of women's representation uh, in government. That should concern us. And even if we weren't talking about 
the sphere of abortion rights, it's important to know the legislation that has been enacted in this country and that the Supreme Court and other courts have upheld, even aside from abortion. For example, that men could rape their wives. Legislation passed by states in the United States upheld by court that men could beat their wives so long as the instrument used was no no thicker than their thumb, that women could be coerced not to be on juries. And that's actually really important. I mean, there are a bevy of laws. And to give you some insight into the breadth of those laws that were contested during Ruth Bader Ginsburg's time at the ACLU, there were more than 300 of those laws that she worked on striking down, she along with ACLU affiliates. And so there, along with abortion, what we see is sexism and misogyny that's been baked into our legislative processes, in our legislation, and also in the court's deliberation of these particular issues. And I think it's really important to place that in context. We still don't have the representation that we deserve in Congress, nor do we see that on our courts. On our courts, depending if you're looking at federal or state, we're somewhere between 20 to 30% women's representation. We've just gotten just over 20% representation in Congress. And yet women make up more than 50% of the US population. And I think that one can see that there is a correlation with women not being in those leadership positions and the type of laws that we see coming out. And I had one other quick point. Oh, I'm sorry. I think we're the connection is breaking up there. I want to remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Michelle Gobin, are you back with us? I am. Can you hear me? I can. In the states that have most um, aggressively legislated in this space, those are states that overwhelmingly have male legislatures and white male legislatures. And that's where we're talking about where women may make up only 5% to 10% of the legislature. Those also happen to be the states that have the highest death rates of women who are seeking to carry their pregnancies to term, which makes you question, are these people truly committed to women's personhood and saving the lives of women, even those who want to carry pregnancies to term. And this listener, Shannon, writes, not allowing health care and abortion services is also another form of genocide, allowing women to die in childbirth, which is highest for black women, which, of course, Jennifer Dalvin is something that we had talked about earlier. And also uh, Dr. Carrie Swiak was talking about as well. Uh, but just also in terms of the way that it does disproportionately affect women living in poverty, women who are black, women who are Latinx, indigenous, Asian American, LGBTQ, women in rural communities. It's, it's, it really is a vast number of people who are affected in this way. That's so true. I, it, it really is. And I don't know if Jennifer wants to add to that, but it's, unfortunate to see the rate of death that we have of women who are in pregnancies in the United States and yet at the same time the very active efforts to upend their right to be able to um, engage in the kind of health care that they want with the backdrop of sterilization. So if you look at this as a holistic the United States in 1927, the United States Supreme Court upheld a Virginia eugenics law. This law became used by the Nazis in Germany. At a certain point, there were Americans that were saying, prominent Americans, the, the Germans are beating us at our own game. The point of this post-reconstruction was to rid the United States of people who were thought of as uh, as unfavorable, these people who tarnished what we thought should be the image of the United States. This included poor white people. It was not just black people. And in the wake of that, there are tens of thousands of people who were sterilized. At one point, um, it's thought of that there were probably a third of women in Puerto Rico who were sterilized, wow. indigenous women sterilized. Yes. For black women, this became called the Mississippi appendectomy because there were 10, 11, 12-year-old black girls who would be taken to the doctor for something innocuous, kept overnight, and then learn later on they had been sterilized. The realm of reproductive freedom, Jennifer Dalvin, I, we just have 30 seconds. I wonder if you want to share with us just what 
your game plan is uh, moving forward at the ACLU? Well, you know, you know, one of the one of the great gifts that Justice Ginsburg gave us, in addition to all of the work that she did um, uh, on sex discrimination in particular, was the gift of teaching us never to give up. If we think about the world that Justice Ginsburg faced when she uh, wanted to go to law school, there weren't women in law school. There weren't women who were judges. There certainly weren't, um, you know, lots of role models on the Supreme Court. And yet she didn't look and say, I can't do this. Um, she yeah. said, we have to keep fighting. We see Justice Ginsburg, even, you know, this year, from her hospital room, uh, raising questions about women's equality in a case about contraception coverage from her hospital bed. Well, Jennifer Dalvin, thank you for leaving us with that thought. Jennifer Dalvin of the ACLU, Michelle Goodwin of UC Irvine, thanks to both of you for joining this, joining us, and thanks to Susan Britton for producing this segment. We're going to head into the weekend with another installment from our series on the music that's getting us through 2020, and I think we could really use it today. We're playing one song every Friday through December, and this song was from Asha in Oakland. So one of the songs getting me through 2020 is Fantasma Vaga by Elado Negro, and uh, I heard it on the radio and I had to stop my car because it was such a vibe and figure out who it was. And I immediately downloaded it, went into my house and listened to it nonstop for days. I think it's so calming and soothing and the whole album is just really amazing. And it says a lot because I actually don't even speak Spanish. I took one semester in community college. And so I don't totally understand all of it, but it's so beautiful, just speaks to the power of music. Thanks, Asha, for sharing Fantasma Vaga. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.